0: the Father through him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: I appreciated uh, Jen's willingness to write something uh, this morning about our trip, and I've got to tell you, Jen was just wonderful on this trip. I know that it was a uh, emotionally challenging time uh, for her but it's one of those weeks it's so mixed with uh, joy and and uh, and heartbreak and Wayne was along with us uh, helping to coordinate the the water purification systems that uh, have been installed in various locations and it was just uh, another wonderful week all the way around I'm just gonna add one story to that because it was um, impactful for me (coughs) in that two years ago while we were ministering in the community of La Savanne, where we had helped uh, to, to plant a church, our medical team had kind of broken the ground in that uh, very difficult community. Um, a witch doctor came to, uh, to our medical team. Uh, she had been a witch doctor for uh, about 20 years. Uh, and It was odd that she would come to a medical team for help, because she would think that her practice would be able to take care of whatever ailed her, but it, it couldn't. Uh, so she went through the, the medical, saw the medical team, this sort of thing, and afterwards I asked permission to speak with her. <clears throat> so we got off for about a half an hour and talked about the gospel uh, during the course of that uh, time. And uh, she, we talked about that. She said, well, yes, we all know Jesus. Um, he is the most powerful of all of the spirits. So yes, I am very familiar with him. So we talked about the gospel, what that meant, this sort of thing. And I invited her To uh, receive Christ Uh, and she said no I just can't do that and uh, I said why not she said well I can't get out I said what do you mean get out Uh, and she said well if if I become a Christian uh, they'll all come after me Uh, all the demons and everybody else I mean I I won't last a day uh, before I'm killed and uh, so after a lot of conversations well Jesus will protect you it it sounded like somebody trying to get out of the mob basically like no nobody can protect me kind of thing so anyway, um, during the course of our week this week, or last week, uh, she came back, uh, was going through the line, and, and, and said, by the way, do you remember me? And I, for, for a moment I did, not then, oh yeah, right, so she, she talked, said, well, I never forgot what you had talked to me about, and I couldn't believe that at the end of everything you still prayed for me, and I've been thinking about that, and I want you to know I've given my life to Christ. And I've left behind all the voodoo, and now she's taking children into her home uh, to be a mother to orphan kids uh, in in her home at this point in time. And we talked about that and celebrated that together. And to me, that was just another beautiful, wonderful demonstration uh, of the grace of God at work in people's lives and the power of the gospel to really bring change and hope and life uh, to, to people. And that really is what we're even talking about here today as we look at this particular text uh, here in Colossians. One of the things I have continued to, as I kind of go through life and ministry, I become increasingly impressed with is the power of the gospel. You heard us talk about this several weeks ago. Um, there are all sorts of different sources of power. You know, we talk about in the world, you know, that money is power and People try to accumulate for themselves political power, and there's nuclear power in the scientific world. And in my day and age, there were slogans like black power and power to the people and all that sort of uh, kind of thing. But I would propose to you that there is no greater power in the universe than that of the gospel because only the gospel has the capacity to save and change a human soul. None of these other things can affect that. They can be used for good. They can be used for ill. But the gospel is the tesseract, if you want to call it that, uh, of the universe. There is no more powerful force because it saves and changes people's lives. And I think in this text in Colossians uh, here today, we have evidence of that once again. So before we take a look at it, let's just look to our God in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we do gather together and worship this morning. We sing praise and give thanks to you, our Lord and our God. But we also gather to hear you speak to us and we pray, Lord, that once again, we will encounter Jesus through the gospel. We thank you that the gospel is the power of God and the salvation. It's not just information to be conveyed, it actually transforms people's lives. And so, Lord, we ask that you would speak to us this day through your word. Because when you speak, Lord, things happen. When you speak, worlds come into existence. When you speak, the dead are raised. When you speak, souls are saved. So, Lord, speak to us this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. When you think about it, what is life ultimately all about? You can answer that question in a lot of different ways people have over the course of the years. Some people say, well, if you've got your health, you've got everything, that kind of thing. But I would propose to you that life is ultimately all about relationships. And that it really is the the quality of our relationships will really determine, for the most part, the quality of our lives. And even if our outer circumstances aren't so good, uh, even if uh, we don't have our health or even have a job or something like that, if our relationships are healthy and solid in our lives, our lives have a solidity to it as well. And this is true when when we come to marriages or families or friendships or coworkers or schoolmates or roommates at college and neighbors or church or or whatever it might be. And I think this particular text in Colossians is a, first of all, uh, at at, at the beginning, a a beautiful description of what it is that God has called us to as as his people. But it also describes at the same time the key ingredients for building quality, healthy relationships. And the two of those things go together. And the thing that's important to note, of course, uh, in this, as we look at this text, that quality relationships just don't happen in a vacuum. They don't just kind of emerge out of thin air. They can be really hard work. Relationships can be messy and complicated because people are messy and complicated. And relationships can be undermined and compromised by all sorts of sin and selfishness, let alone just difficult circumstances. And that's why I love how this text begins. Because yes, it calls us to do things like put on compassion, kindness, gentleness, forbearance, all these sort of things. Forbear with one another, forgive each other, all that. It's a beautiful portrait of what we're called to as God's people, the life together God has called us to, and the key ingredients for healthy relationships across the board. But where do they all come from? How can we ex- be expected to do these things? Well, it all starts by understanding and experiencing at least three realities. And this is what he leads with. To understand the three prerequisites that if you're a Christian, you are chosen You are holy, and you are beloved. Those are amazing things. Think about that. Let's reflect on these terms. Before we move on into anything else, let's reflect on those terms for just a moment. Because I think it's so easy for Christians to forget who they are and what they have in Christ. It's so easy to forget what God has done for us and what it even means to be saved. I've talked to people who will say, yes, I've been saved, I asked Jesus in my life years ago, and it's like, ho-hum, been there, done that. But do we really understand and see it as an incredible reality every single day? When we wake up in the morning, if you're a believer, when you wake up in the morning, you wake up to unbelievable realities, that now are the foundation of your life and shape your life and how you go about your day, whatever it is that you've got to deal with. You have purpose and meaning and identity and security and significance. You have peace and joy. You have a God who has loved you, who has given his self for you on the cross. And your sins are forgiven. You're not going to hell. You're going to heaven. You have eternal life. You're a child of God. And on and on it goes. And it would behoove us every single morning when you're wiping the sleep from your eyes and trying to get your act together for another day that this becomes another reminder. Do you understand who you are, what you have in Christ as you go forth into your day? It's remarkable. So yes, Paul's concern here is how we live together, how we treat each other as believers. But in in saying this, the key is to remember who we are and what we have in Christ. Or the reverse would be that if you're having trouble with these things, showing compassion, being humble, forbearing with one another, it means you don't get what it's all about. You really have not gotten the gospel. And so he says several things here. Let's look at those. He says, first of all, you are chosen. Wow. That is a pretty incredible statement to make. If you are a Christian, it is only because you have been chosen by God. I find that kind of a statement, a wonder, a mystery. How does that work? How do you connect the dots? How do you make all the pieces fit for that? And I'm not always able to do that, but the truth of of the matter is, Jesus says in John 15, 16, you didn't choose me, I chose you, and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. No one can come unto me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. And it goes on and on with Ephesians chapter 1 where Paul kind of goes nuts over all the blessings that he has in Christ. And he says over and over, I can't believe that I have been chosen by God before the foundation of the world, predestined to be in a relationship with him, sealed by the Spirit, and on and on and on. He goes like that. It's all over the Scriptures. And what it's really teaching us, however you try to connect those dots here intellectually, the point is that salvation is by grace. What he's saying is that it's all about what God does for you, not about what you do for God. That it's unmerited favor, it is unearned, it is undeserved, and it's not because you're worthy of it, not because you're good, not because you're better than anybody else, but if you're a Christian, it's because Jesus... Suffered and died in your place on the cross, just as Jim was praying for us uh, earlier uh, in, in the service. He suffered and died in your place. He took the eternal judgment that's supposed to be poured out on you because of your sin, and yet it was poured out on Him instead. He stepped in front and took the bullet that was intended for you, and then when you heard of these things, the Holy Spirit opened your heart to understand and repent and believe. And so we're left grappling with these realities when we begin to read the scriptures. Okay, if I'm a Christian then, and it's only because He did these things for me, then opened my heart to understand, repent, and believe, why me? Why me? And the answer is I don't know. And you don't either. It's all as grace. It's all a wonder. It is an unspeakable joy. It leads to praise and thanksgiving. It becomes fuel for our worship. And it becomes a foundation for living every day of our lives and with all of our relationships because the one thing it produces above all else is humility. I had nothing to do with this. Everything I have and all that I am now is by grace. As Paul says in Ephesians, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, for by grace you have been saved through faith. That is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, lest any man should boast. That's where it starts is by grasping this at a deeper and deeper level in our lives, letting it soak in, and it begins to bring real change to how we go about life and how we relate to other people. And if that were not enough, he says you are now also holy. Literally, it means you're a saint. You might feel uncomfortable with that title. I don't know, but that's what the Bible calls you, that you are now a saint which means literally you are set apart. Set apart as belonging now to to God. That's what the word holy means. It means set apart uh, for something very special, something very unique. God himself is described as holy because he is transcendent, he is infinite, he is almighty, he's not like us, he is set apart from us. We are finite, we are not holy, we are not all-powerful, we're not only, God is, not only is he holy, but as all the the phrases in there say, he is holy, holy, holy. You know, you don't have a chance in the Bible here to put something in bold or italics, and didn't have that option then, so you just repeat it uh, as often as you need to to drive the point home. So something that's holy, in God's case, he's set apart, is different than us. Or keep the Sabbath day holy. Well, what does that mean? Is that, well, the Sabbath day is set apart. It's different than the other days. It has a holy purpose uh, to it. What it means when he says you are holy is that now you are set apart. You are different because you belong to God and are set apart for his purposes. And yet it goes even deeper than that because it says, not only you set apart and belong to God, but now you are perfectly righteous in His sight. You are pure in His sight, not in and of yourself, but in and through Christ. You are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. As Paul says, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin in order that we might become the righteousness. Of God another remarkable concept it's hard to grasp but maybe this will help some of you may have had to read during your high school years during English lit or something like that uh, the book by Mark Twain uh, the prince and the pauper Maybe some of you have read that or maybe you saw the Disney movie that's a good alternative uh, to reading through the whole book that Walt Disney turned it into a movie prince and the pauper and the short uh, story of it all is that there are these two boys that are born who are twins. They, they're absolutely identical, but they're separated at birth, this sort of thing, and through various circumstances, one boy is raised in the castle, and with it all the privileges that go with it. He's dressed in royal robes all the time. He eats the finest foods. People are always serving him. He has the best of everything, but he's never always satisfied with that. He goes to the gates, and he looks out at the gates, and he sees people living life, and he's like, oh, I just so wish I could be out there and be free and live life on my own terms and not everybody telling me what to do, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But then there's the other boy who was just raised on the streets. He's just a pauper. He's a he's a street kid. And he's, he's dressed in rags and he's dirty and all this sort of thing. And he tends to look inside the, the gates the other way and go, oh man, how great it would be to live in the castle. And I'd have food to eat and i have a bed to sleep in and all these other sorts of things. Well, of course, the way it works is that by chance they meet on the streets one day, they realize they look at each other and this like like each other and this plan hatches. And what they decide to do is to change clothes. So the pauper takes on the royal robes of the prince, and he jumps in the carriage and goes into the castle. And the, and the prince takes on the rags of the, the pauper, and he runs out into the streets to live life now at his own terms. And the fact of the matter is, the prince begins to realize that people aren't treating him so good anymore. He's getting kicked around and told to get a w- leave and go away, and he doesn't have a place to sleep, and all he, does, it's just, his just, life is rotten, and he hates it, you know, kind of thing. On the other hand, You got this pauper who's living in the castle, and he's got it all. You know, but they're not any different. The only reason they are treated differently here, the reason their status has changed is because of the clothes that they're wearing. That's really it and I don't think Mark Twain was trying to get across this point, uh, but it does serve as a great illustration uh, here that that's your status before God. It's not that you and yourself are righteous anymore. No longer is, I mean, it never was about what you do for God. It's what he has done for you. In Christ, he has set you apart as belonging to himself, made you holy, and clothed you in his righteousness. You are now his son. You bear his name. You have all the rights and the privileges that go with that. You are a son, a daughter of the King. And as you go through every day, as you enter into relationships, now that flavors everything that you do. These are incredible realities for us. And if that were not enough, you are deeply, personally loved. Man, if there was one thing I wish I could get my head around, If there's one thing I wish all of us could really grasp is how deeply we're loved by God. We have a hard time with that. A lot of us have lots of different images and ideas or baggage about God and who he is and what a relationship with him looks like and this sort of thing. But at the core, he's chosen you, made you his child. He pours his love out on you. He is literally giddy with love for you. He proved this in Jesus in the cross, that God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You look at the cross every day of your life and you see not only what your sin deserved, what the holiness of God required, but you see love on display, that God loved you so much that this is the lengths he was willing to go to to bring you back into the relationship for which he created you in the first place. And now he watches over you and cares for you. He causes all things to work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches, and because of that I want you to abide in my love. Park yourself there. Live there. That's what your life is going to be all about. And he delights in us. Like I said, he's just giddy with love for you. Listen to this passage from Zephaniah. No, it's not the first place you turn in the Bible and you go places, but great text. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Do you think of God that way when you wake up in the morning? that it's almost as God is waiting for you and say, ooh, ooh, she's about to wake up. Oh, he's, he's about to wake up. And st-. Do you remember those days with your small children after they were born and they're small and they're growing? This sort of thing? You could almost wait for the, the day to begin with them and then you'd pick them up at times. You've got them in your arms or whatever. You swing them around and you're singing to them and you're dancing with them around the room as you move and this sort of thing. That's the way God feels about you. He's just giddy in love with you. You're his delight, you're his joy, because he's paid the price, he's cleaned away all the dirt, he's made you holy, he's given you his name, you're his child and he is head over heels in love with you. These are realities for every day, the basics of life, the source of joy and peace in all circumstances. These truths are wonderful in and of themselves, and we could just stop right here. We're not going to, but we could stop right here. But what the point for all of this is, is that because of these things, because of who we are as God's people, we are now called to conduct ourselves in a manner consistent with the grace that we ourselves have received. We are to treat others with the same kind of love with which we have been loved that even while we were yet sinners Christ died for us and so yeah he fleshes it all out here compassion and kindness humility gentleness forbearance forbearing with one another all the others all these things that he lays out and what's interesting about all of these is you, is you Think about why they're saying you're going to need to forbear, you're going to need to forgive, you're going to need to show compassion, all these other sort of things. The presupposition here is that the Christian community, while it is made up of those who are saved, of those who are chosen and holy and loved, it's still a community made up of sinners. And you're still in a marriage with sinners. Sinners. And you still have a family full of sinners. And you go to school with people who are are sinners. And it goes on and on, workplace and everything else. So as a result, we are going to offend each other, irritate, sin against, betray one another. We're still going to have problems with one another. We can't always get along. And therefore, you're going to have to remember who you are and begin to treat other people from that basis, from that point of view. That's, the, that's how the gospel brings change. Because it's not only being saved by the gospel, it's living every day according to the gospel. The same dynamics that we live by and apply to our lives, the gospel in you know, all of our relationships. This is how the Christian community is different from the world, how Christian families are different from the world, and on and on and on. See, when the world gets offended and things go wrong, and pe- people say things that are politically incorrect or whatever it might be, the world gets hateful, vindictive, and people cut themselves off from one another. They hold grudges, and on and on. People take revenge. They get even. But not God's people. Not people who have been chosen, who are holy, and who are deeply loved. We're coming from a whole new reference point in life. And that's not how we live. We are a people who understand and have experienced a transcendent love, a supernatural love and otherworldly love and begin to show that same kind of supernatural love elsewhere. And so Christian community is where relationships are done right, where yes, there are problems, but healing and reconciliation is going on. People are being compassionate and kind and patient and gentle and humble with one another. People are learning and growing through their differences. They have difficulties with each other. So we're not models of perfection. That is not what the church is supposed to be. It is not called to be a model of perfection. It is always going to be filled with hypocrites. That's part of our definition of existence. But we are are flawed, broken people. We are not a country club for saints. We are a hospital for sinners and it's staffed by sinners. But what we are are people who are working at doing relationships right through the power of the gospel. So we we don't have time to look at all of these things. Let's just look at one real quickly. Forbear with one another. I like this one. What does this mean to forbear with one another? Well, literally, uh, to interpret the word, it means to endure patiently, to put up with others. Okay, simple enough. To be charitable towards people with their faults, gracious in dealings with others, showing mercy in your judgments toward one another, always giving the benefit of the doubt. This is how various people have de- defined that term. And we need forbearance in our lives because sometimes you need it because of interpersonal differences and annoyances and offenses. Maybe it's when somebody borrows something without asking. Maybe it's when they leave the toilet seat up. Maybe they'll put things back where they found them. They don't do something the way you think it ought to be done. They say something offhand that you find insensitive or rude or irritating. You just rub each other the wrong way. That happens in life. That's what it means to be people together in church, family, or whatever context it might be. Sometimes forbearance is needed when differences of opinion or even convictions collide on any number of issues. I mean, the fact of the matter is Christians are seriously divided and have strong opinions that are opposed to one another, convictions that they have. I've, I've seen people fight tooth and nail over whether homeschooling or public school or Christian school should be the norm. I see Republicans and Democrats at each other's throat. People have strong opinions on the whole immigration uh, issue that are counter to each other. They can think about believers' baptism only or infant baptism or any. No- you can go right down the list. There's a whole bunch of stuff. Our convictions are just not going to line up. We're just not going to see stuff eye to eye. What we need to do is first start with where we are united, with our forbearance. if you're a Christian, you've been chosen like me, you're holy like me. You're a child of God, like me. We're part of the same family, and we didn't get to choose each other, so let's work this out together or learn to forbear with one another. Too often, people will fight and condemn and divide over these things, but the one thing we do have, where we go to all the time, is Jesus. That's who, that's what we have in common. You know, I'm so impressed with the disciples. That Jesus chose. I mean, really, when you step back and look at these, you're going. You're, I mean, it's a bit irreverent, but you're thinking, what were you thinking with these guys? Really, I mean, you you, you chose Peter to be one of your. This guy who was impetuous and uncouth and always putting his foot in his mouth. Then you got Andrew, who's apparently really quiet and simple. You know, he just doesn't say a whole lot. You know, here. Then you got Thomas who's intellectual and educated and inquisitive and doubting. And then you've got Matthew, this corrupt government official and traitor to his people. And then you've got Simon the Zealot, who literally signed a blood vow to kill people like Matthew. And all these different guys are now part of Jesus' disciples. It's remarkable. You've got the, the liberal left and the alt-right all together uh, here. As, as Jesus's followers. But they're all united around Jesus. And they learn to get along with each other. They learn to love one another because they're family. And you just don't get to choose family. you got to take what you get. Brothers, sisters, kids, parents, whatever. You take what you get and you learn to love one another. Sometimes, it's not just a matter of differences or minor irritations or real offenses, but, but it's real wrongdoing where we hurt and offend one another. We say cruel and cutting things. We criticize unfairly. We make false judgments and accusations. We don't appreciate each other. We gossip, we slander, we lie. We still do all of these things. And when any of these things happen, any of all of the above happens, we have three choices as Christians always stemming from understanding who we are in Christ and what we have. Well, first of all, you can use discretion and decide to forbear. In other words, let it go. Proverbs 19.11 says, A man's discretion makes him slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook a transgression. Sometimes you just let it go. And you absorb the pain or the insult or whatever to yourself. And you just let it go. There are a lot of opportunities in this life to keep your mouth shut. I'd encourage us to take advantage of every one of them if we can. Proverbs ten twelve, Love covers a multitude of sins. Or we can use discretion and decide to confront or dialogue with one another to approach each other with humility and respect and work things out honestly and humbly with one another. Years ago, uh, there was a deacon in our church who asked if he could come over to the house and meet with me for a few minutes. Sure. So he comes on over to the house and he sits down with me with a couple minutes of conversation. He says, I'm here because I need to talk to you about something. And I'm representing uh, a few other people as well. But I need to tell you, you really are irritating a lot of people. He's a much stronger word than that, actually. But you are really irritating a lot of people. Some of us have just about had it with you. I'm like, oh, wow, what, what are we talking about here? Said so you are just so arrogant. You always think you know the answer. Nobody can tell you anything. You always have this, that, or the other thing. So it is really starting to get in the way of relationships and in your ministry. And so I kind of got elected <laughs> to come talk to you because he was one of my closer friends. That was an extremely difficult conversation to have, very humbling. But over the course of the years, I've grown an appreciation for the really deep love and respect and the risk that he was willing to take for my benefit and for the ministry. That had a huge impact on me. Sometimes we do have to use discretion and approach one another with grace and humility but with total honesty. And then thirdly, depending on what it is and what's happened, we have to ask, we have to exercise forgiveness. If you haven't decided to forbear, if you haven't dialogued over it, then you do come to the point where you just simply have to forgive. And forgiveness as it did for Jesus means that he absorbed to himself the just deserts of our sin. He bore that in and of himself. And that's often what forgiveness is. That's why it's so hard to do. Because you are absorbing to yourself the injustice or the pain that is involved. And forgiveness is so hard to do because feelings don't tend to follow until much, much later. But it is an act of faith, it is an act of intentionality in our part that says, what I'm doing here is I am setting aside this offense. I'm I'm, I'm absorbing it to myself, and I'm no longer going to allow it to hinder our relationship. I'm no longer going to let it keep me from loving you well. It may take a while for my feelings to catch up here, but this is an act of faith, it's a decision that I'm making. I remember reading a story about Clara Barton. I think she's the founder of the Red Cross or something like that. Anyway, she was talking about somebody and dealing with somebody, and they were, the other people were amazed because this person had slandered her in public, had opposed what she was doing, didn't think women ought to be involved in that kind of a, a service and all this kind of thing, it had really given her a very, very hard time. But she was treating him very graciously and all these things, and then the guy goes off, and these other people came up to her and said, what were you doing? This guy has treated you horribly. Uh, over the years. Why were you so nice to him? Why were you helping him? All this sort of thing. And she stopped for a minute and said, yeah, it's true, but I distinctly remember forgetting all that. That's forgiveness. It's deciding to forget all that, to let it go, to forgive other people. The only way you can do this, the only basis on which you can do this is if you know who you are in Christ, that you are a recipient of his grace. That you are chosen, holy, and loved. For too many other people, including Christians, when these kind of issues come up, we either clam up, we just harbor our hurt and bitterness and don't resolve it in any kind of biblical way, and that's deadly. Or we run away, we refuse to pursue biblical solutions, which is the way of the world. People end their marriages, they leave their churches, they do any number of things. There's a lot of reasons you can leave a marriage, or at least some, Uh, and maybe even a good reason or two to leave your church as well. But that's not how we generally function. We don't clam up. We don't run away. We don't gossip and slander. So we know that Christians and the church are not perfect, and they never will be. But we need to be a people who are diligent, who work hard, at making our families, our neighborhoods, our schools, our workplaces, our churches especially, a place where people are resolving their differences and their difficulties in a biblical way, humbly and graciously, where people are encouraging and praying for one another, not hating and gossiping, where people are accepting and caring for one another, not fighting and dividing, where people are truly working at loving one another because it takes work. And this is the measure of a church. Not its programs, not its preaching. Life is all about relationships with God, with one another. Jesus said, Love one another as I have loved you. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The distinguishing mark of Christians is not their doctrine, as important as it might be. It is not the missions, the mercy work that they might be doing. It is not their programs and ministries of their local church. Do they love one another? in these sort of hard, practical, down-in-the-dirt ways, because they know who they are and where they're coming from. We seek to please our God and we have, this is a key to pleasing Him. It's a key to our joy. It's a key to our witness to the world if we remember who we are and what we have. So I asked two questions of you this morning. First, are you a Christian? I'm not talking about a person who may have been raised in a church home, a Christian home, who's generally good and moral, who generally tries to do the right thing or believes in God. Because we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All, every one of us. I'm asking whether you have acknowledged your sin. If you have turned to Christ and asked Him to be your Savior and Lord. If you ask Him to forgive you, come into your life, and begin to make you the person He created you to be in the first place. And to have the relationship with God and with others that you were created to have. And if you are a Christian, are you living like it? Are you living like the profile of Colossians three twelve and following? If we're honest with ourselves, we aren't. And one of the reasons that's the reality is we have forgotten the gospel, pure and simple. We've forgotten who we are, so we have to come back to the foot of the cross. We have to ask for forgiveness. We have to ask God to let these things soak into us. We need to reflect on them, remind each other of them, and realize that I am chosen, saved by grace. I am holy, set apart as belonging to God and righteous in his sight through Christ. And he is deeply, deeply in love with me. And he's proved it at every turn, especially at the cross. Therefore, Jesus, help me to live in accord with these realities. And let my marriage and let my family and let our church begin to see the impact of the gospel in our midst to your glory, to our joy, and to our witness to the world. Let's pray. Father, this is such a profound text, so much to it. Please let its truths sink deep into our soul. Please let us hear you speaking to us today. And may we go forth from here rejoicing in who we are and what we have in Christ. And may it truly impact every relationship we have and how we go about every day. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.